Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the conference being hosted by the Bar of Ireland for 2021. The theme of the conference over the next three days is human rights, universal rights, question mark. Firstly, before we start today, I would like to thank all of the attendees and I would like to thank everyone who has agreed to tune in and particularly those who have contributed sums of money, which are going to our two chosen charities. The chosen charities are the Capuchin Day Centre and the Irish Rule of Law International, which is a human dignity foundation, which is operated by Mr. Angus Kelly, who is a human rights activist. And thus far, I'd like to thank you all because you have now contributed just shy of five and a half thousand euro. So thank you very much. In addition, I would like to thank our two main sponsors. I would particularly like to thank Aon and I would like to thank Irish Life. Without your assistance and your financial contributions, we would not be in a position to host this virtual conference and would not be in a position to provide sums of money to the chosen charities. So thank you to those two sponsors. And then before I move on to any opening, I would like to personally thank all of our speakers, not just today, but over the two days hereafter, who have agreed to generously give up their time and to speak at our conference. So personally, and on behalf of the bar, thank you very much indeed. So you may ask, why are we concentrating on human rights? And the basic answer to that is human rights affect us in every aspect of our lives. And human rights are something that are possessed of all human beings. And if that's so, then it follows logically. Does it not apply equally to everybody? Equal rights in respect of dignity, equal rights in respect of gender, race, color, creed, sexual orientation. There are also inalienable rights rights that we can't give away, or rights that can't or shouldn't be taken from us. We have the right to live our lives within certain parameters, lawful parameters. We have the right to have certain economic rights, social rights, family rights, cultural rights, and also political rights. Under our own constitution from articles 40 to 44, we recognize many of those rights. And the concern is that some of those rights are being trampled on, if not here, then at least abroad. And that is something that any true democracy or any true lawyer would be against. We are in favor, obviously, of human rights. So though our fundamental rights are not absolute, we sometimes here in the Western world, and indeed in our own Republic, take for granted certain of those rights. We all have the right to equality before the law, access to justice, the right to a trial, the right to a fair trial. But can we say that that right is exercised by every human being in this jurisdiction or by every human being on the planet? Then we have the right of freedom of expression. And we've seen internationally how certain of those rights regarding freedom of expression have been trampled upon. We have certain governments even within the EU jurisdiction, who are ignoring the rule of law, who are interfering with the independence of the judiciary. You go further afield and the freedom of expression has been trampled on to the extent 
that journalists, to include an Irish journalist, Yvonne Murray, and her husband from the BBC, John Sudworth, she being an employee of RT, had to leave China. The phrase they used was very quickly because of the intimidation and harassment that they were coming under because of their freedom of expression, the freedom of the press that was being interfered with. Then other rights of Irish people that are being interfered with, but that don't seem to be in headlines every day and they should be, are the rights of example of Irishman Richard O'Halloran. The background to Mr. O'Halloran's case is that he went for his employer, a Chinese aviation company to China to try and mediate a settlement regarding a dispute. And basically the Chinese government has not allowed him to leave their jurisdiction until their demand and the demand of their Chinese airline company is satisfied in full in quantum, which runs into millions. My understanding is that it's almost 18 months now since he left Irish soil. Where are his constitutional rights? Where are his fundamental rights? Those are rights that need to be protected. And issues such as attacks upon private individuals, attacks upon the press, attack, attacks upon people who express their own opinions, but just because their country to certain governments have those rights trampled, that is a line we must draw in the sand. And it's with that in mind that the conference is going to address rights at home within this jurisdiction, together with rights across the border, hands across the border, rights post-Brexit. And then on day two, we're going to look at international rights or concentrate on, on international human rights. And then on day three, literally in celebration of the fact that almost 100 years ago, in fact, the centenary is this November coming, of the call of the first Irish woman to the bar. We're looking at uh, gender equality and diversity, and we have a triumvirate of three uh, justices of three different Supreme Courts, all of whom are female, who are going to address us. So without taking up any more of your time, I am now going to invite our first speaker, and by way of short introduction, to the members of the bar and indeed the members of the judiciary, he will not need any introduction. But our first speaker this evening is our own ex-chair of the Bar of Ireland, Mr. Mihol P. O'Higgins. And by way of short background, Mihol was called to the bar in 1990, having graduated from UCD with a BCL uh, in 1988. He was called to the inner bar in 2008 and he has been a bencher of the King's Inns since 2018. In addition, he is a member of the Bar of Northern Ireland. So Mihol practices primarily in the areas of administrative law, criminal law, and constitutional law. And with that background, he's going to present to us his paper, which is entitled, Observation on the Power of the Courts, the Least Dangerous and Yet Least Accountable Branch of Government, to strike down legislation and protect rights. So thank you. Mihal, please. Uh, thanks very much, Maura, uh, and thanks very much for the lovely invitation to speak uh, to the bar and to uh, the uh, our gathered guests. Um, those of you hoping to tune in at 4.30 and see Donald O'Donnell on screen will be slightly alarmed uh, to see me. 
But what we're doing here is we're following the protocol for All Ireland Sunday, uh, which those of you will know uh, involves playing um, the Artane Boys Band first, uh, the role I'm fulfilling, before the more serious players uh, are brought on after the warm-up act. Uh, so that's uh, my role in matters. Um, I have prepared a paper, and it, the title of it has slightly undergone change. Uh, our advisors tell, tell us that the initial title was a little bit long-winded and chunky. So we've come up with this title instead, Distorting Democracy or Protecting Rights, Some Thoughts on the Power of the Courts to Strike Down Legislation. And um, April Duff, uh, BL, uh, um, has co-written the paper with me. And uh, April Duff, BL, has a legal mind which is uh, really um, quite frightening, uh, as you will see from the paper when you get a chance to have a look at it. Um, uh, marvellous, creative uh, and uh, intellectual uh, mind uh, that has ability to digest uh, difficult concepts. And we hope in the presentation um, explain matters in a reasonably clear way. We, we seek to cover a number of different areas. I'm going to focus for initially on the whole uh, role of judicial review and the power of the courts to strike down legislation in our democratic order, which is a, a slightly, at first blush, troubling concept, notwithstanding how tremendous and important the power is. We're going to look at a very important study that was carried out by, who else? Uh, Jared Hogan, uh, with two other distinguished authors, uh, Rachel Walsh and uh, David Kenny, uh, in an anthology of declarations of unconstitutionality that was written in 2015. Uh, we're going to look at the themes that are identified in the case law in, in that important work. Uh, and we're going to pick up on a few of those team, uh, themes and see how they've fared uh, in the period since 2015 up until today. Uh, we're going to look at some important cases in the Supreme Court very recently. Um, Friends of the Irish environment, the Irish government, uh, where the uh, I won't say abandoned, I won't say unenumerated rights doctrine was abandoned, but certainly uh, it very much entrenched the whole notion of derived rights uh, as, as the, uh, the relevant concept. We're going to look at the Supreme Court's judgment in Gary and the Minister for Justice in asylum case, uh, and a decision of the Court of Appeal in another, if you like, derived rights case of Burke and the Minister for Education, which was the homeschoolers challenge to their exclusion from the calculated grade um, scheme that the, was introduced uh, to deal with COVID restrictions in place of the Leaving Cert a couple of years ago. So first of all then, um, the role of judicial review uh, in, uh, in our democratic order. Um, not very far from here, uh, in alarmingly in another member state, Hungary, uh, the leader of that country has tabled plan, Viktor Orban, tabled plans to ban any material that promotes homosexuality and promotes gender transition amongst young people. He's also announced that Hungary must make its asylum policies even tougher to stop, quote, migrant armies uh, invading Europe during an age of epidemics and migration. And one question we pose is, suppose, suppose it were to come to pass that similar discriminatory policies took hold in Ireland. To whom would the victims look to protect their rights? 
If we swing the pendulum politically to the other extreme, suppose a far-right regime was to come into power, in, a far-left regime was to come into power in Ireland um, on the back of a wave of um, dissatisfaction with austerity politics uh, on a promise to introduce, say, 90% income tax rates amongst uh, certain groupings within society. To whom would the affected parties look to protect their rights? Particularly if, as we know, there's a strong convention, not to say a principle of law, that generally speaking, uh, the courts should show judicial restraint uh, when being asked to strike down legislation and should, generally speaking, um, not wade into political or social waters. Uh, for that is to, as it were, take on the functions of other organs of state that are elected, uh, that have a mandate uh, of a democratic nature. So um, the permissible boundaries of judicial review uh, and uh, the necessity for the courts to, uh, to avoid wading into political waters are important themes that were considered in, it's now 20 years ago, but in a really important and interesting case called TD, uh, back in 2001. Uh, and in that case, you, you'll, you'll be aware it was the facts involved disadvantaged children and the necessity to build special care units for them in the minors list that Mr. Justice Peter Kelly then presided over. And Judge Kelly, somewhat um, um, dissatisfied with and impatient with uh, broken assurances and broken promises that had been given to him, uh, from departmental officials about building these units for children, uh, went a further step and decided to impose a mandatory order directing the executive what they needed to do in terms of following their own policy and also requiring the executive to come back into his court to give progress reports and also um, 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 seek permission if the policy was not to be adhered to further. And uh, the, the uh, state... Uh, appealed to the Supreme Court, and in very interesting five judgments that were handed down, we have tremendous insights into this whole area of where in the democratic order uh, judicial review lies. Now, it wasn't a constitutional challenge case, but nonetheless, it had an awful lot of important things to say about the separation of powers doctrine. And um, I'm just going to mention three judgments. They're all worth a, a, a deep read. Judge Murray referred to the judicial branch being the least dangerous branch, though least accountable, having power over neither purse nor sword. Uh, he emphasized it's not for the courts to decide policy or to implement it. It may determine where such, whether such policy or actions to implement such policy are compatible with the constitution. Uh, but that he observed is not actually deciding policy. Uh, and he emphasized that judicial review does not, in such democracies, give the court's jurisdiction to exercise rather than review executive functions or legislative functions. For his part, Judge Hardiman was a little bit more hardline. He felt that the uh, learned high court judge had gone way too far. And he felt that to allow the order stand would allow effectively uh, uh, an enormous transfer of power over from an unelected judiciary uh, at the expense of the politically accountable branches of government and would represent a paramountcy 
for the judicial side of uh, the three organs of government. Um, and he cited with approval, interestingly, the view of a person whom he referred to as a distinguished legal scholar, a gentleman by the name of Hogan, who many of you will be familiar with, who uh, offered this view in, a, in a, an article of the time. He said that, uh, let us be under no illusion about one key consequence of such a change, that is to say, of giving constitutional recognition to uh, socioeconomic rights. He said, it will mean a further significant transfer of power from the elected branches of government to an unelected judiciary, which is already by the standards of most Western democracies, extremely powerful, was his view. Uh, and um, in her dissenting judgment, Judge Denham uh, also considered the role of judicial review in a modern democracy. And she quoted with approval uh, a judgment of the Chief Justice of Israel at the time, uh, Barak, Chief Justice, uh, who felt that democracy also means, as well as the will of the people, it means the rule of basic values and human rights as expressed in the Constitution. And to maintain that judicial review is undemocratic, uh, the Israeli uh, Chief uh, Justice uh, opined, is to maintain that safeguarding human rights is undemocratic. Judge Denham acknowledged that the order granted by Judge uh, Kelly in the High Court was at the extremity uh, of the jurisdiction, and consequently there was a heavy burden on the court to acknowledge the respect it must give to the people's other organs of state. Uh, but in light of the exceptional circumstances, she declared herself satisfied that the court had a jurisdiction to impose a mandatory order in order to vindicate rights. And that was her ultimate conclusion. And she was in a minority of four to one on that particular occasion. Now, moving away from TD, uh, various themes have emerged over uh, the period that followed in the court's exercise of its uh, tremendous power and important power to strike down legislation. And distinct trends have uh, emerged. And I mentioned the anthology uh, prepared and written by uh, Judge Hogan, uh, David Kenny and Rachel Walsh. It's called An Anthology of Declarations of Unconstitutionality, and it was written in 2015. And it tracked and chronicled uh, the 93 declarations of unconstitutionality that were handed down by superior courts in that period from 1937, when the Constitution was brought in, to 2015, when the article was written. And um, they also, the authors also identified important uh, themes and we can see, and I might in this, at this point ask uh, Stephen, if he wouldn't mind uh, putting up a, the slide that I just, thank you very much. That is a table that I have um, uh, stolen actually from Jared Hogan's anthology. Uh, I hope that's all right. Um, and you'll see that in that it tracks the declarations number 93 from the period 1937 across the decades. Um, and this is a little bit of a, admittedly, somewhat simplistic uh, um, surface level analysis by me, not by the authors. But you'll see that the 1970s and 1980s appeared to have been a hugely interventionist era in the Irish courts, with the top judicial goal scorer uh, on the constitutional table, so to speak, being Mr. Justice Brian Walsh, um, I suppose the, the, the Alan Shearer of his day, uh, if that's not too um, low-brow a reference. 
so on the, over the course of his long career, uh, he sat on courts that issued more than 20 declarations of unconstitutionality. And uh, the other um, uh, top um, uh, scorers, uh, Mr. Justice Henchy, Chief Justice O'Dolly, and Chief Justice Higgins, O'Higgins, uh, were actually quite a distance short um, on the podium from Judge Wall's uh, position in terms of his uh, overall record. Uh, now, the declining number of declarations in recent years uh, is put into perhaps greater relief, you'll see from the table, when one factors in the much larger number of judges that are now on, on the book, so to speak. If one looks at the Irish reports from 1970, there were seven High Court judges and five Supreme Court judges. Uh, the year 2000, if you look at the Irish reports, we have 29 High Court judges and 11 Supreme Court judges. At that point in time, 2000, the Court of Appeal had not been invented. Uh, and now, as of today, the Court Service website tells us that there are 65 Superior Court judges 41 High Court, 16 in the Court of Appeal, and eight in the highest court in the land in the Supreme Court. Now, I should indicate there's a major health warning with any of these statistics, uh, and it's dangerous to extract conclusions or inferences that might be reduced to some sort of simplistic idea that uh, one should equate the seeming reduction in the strike-down rate of strike-downs of legislation with a reduced vibrancy in constitutional law. And that is because, I suppose, the, the rich tapestry of constitutional law goes far beyond declarations of constitutionality. Rights are protected every day in our courts, whether it's interpreting statutes, uh, granting Article 40 applications for a habeas corpus, uh, granting any number of stateside declarations, um, um, ultra-virus declarations by the High Court, every day there are important decisions made upholding rights, which, as I say, don't necessarily involve uh, challenges to constitutionality of legislation. A, a second theme that was developed by the authors in that important anthology was the theme of unenumerated rights and the doctrine that said that personal rights protected under Article 40 are identified or can be identified on an, on an ad hoc basis. Uh, and this enjoyed quite a degree of prominence in the literature since six, 1965 and Ryan and the Attorney General and the decision of Judge Kenny. Now, since the turn of the century, we track in the paper that the role of unenumerated rights uh, has been really quite dormant. Uh, and uh, there's been a move movement more towards judicial restraint in that area. And now with the Supreme Court's important decision uh, and other and Court of Appeal decisions, uh, we have a move now towards something called derived rights, and we'll come to those later on, which in our view, we offer respectfully, does seem to give a greater democratic legitimacy to the identification of rights, rather than basing them on the previous basis of locating them effectively arising from the Christian uh, ideology upon which much of the Constitution in express terms appears to be based. We look at the decision in Carter, the decision of Mr. Justice Humphreys that went up to the Court of Appeal, where he found for a Leaving Cert student challenging her, uh, her, her mark in terms of access to education, Judge Humphreys had found an, un, an identified unenumerated right of the right to access higher education. Uh, and the Court of Appeal uh, uh, didn't like that approach and felt that on the particular facts there, procedurally, they wouldn't uphold that and they said that should be held over for another case where it arose more clearly. 
Um, it, also, Judge Barrett, in a case called Merriman, found a recognised a constitutional right to an environment that is consistent with human dignity. Again, uh, the Supreme Court uh, distanced themselves somewhat from such a, uh, a finding of that nature, uh, based upon an unenumerated un un rights doctrine, uh, and did so in the really important case of Friends of the Irish Environment against the Government of Ireland. So that's dealt with in some detail in the paper. Uh, I'm going to mention, I'm going to pass on a bit from that because it's it's uh, treated out reasonably fully. Uh, I'm going to mention the decision of the Court of Appeal in Burke, uh, which is another intriguing early example of the new derived rights uh, approach being put into effect. Uh, and it's a decision where Mr. Justice Meenan had quashed the state's exclusion from the calculated grades scheme, uh, replacing the Leaving Cert uh, for homeschooled children. And uh, that was appealed by the state to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal, with uh, Judges Donnelly, Faherty, and New Rafferty, uh, rejecting the state's appeal uh, and finding that there was, uh, they identified a new constitutional right of the homeschool child to have, quote, a reasonable account taken of her situation when educational policies were being implemented by the state. Uh, now, just the last couple of days, I think, or certainly the last week, the Supreme Court has agreed to admit that appeal. So we wait with interest uh, how that matter develops in the Supreme Court and whether it upholds the finding of that constitutional right and uh, it, where precisely that right is to be located within the constitutional text. Another theme, theme identified by Judge Hogan and his colleagues in the 2015 paper was the relative prominence uh, of procedural matters in the court's reasoning in constitutional cases when striking down legislation in preference to reasoning based upon a violation of substantive rights. And I suppose the necessity for judicial restraint and not wading in political waters may have featured there as well. Uh, a number of cases appear to uh, vouch for that approach. Uh, Mr. Damash, who on one view has made quite a significant contribution to Irish constitutional jurisprudence, he's lent his name to three separate challenges, uh, a leading extradition uh, precedent, he also was the gentleman who challenged successfully the, uh, or perhaps it was Mark Lynham, uh, challenged successfully the um, um, uh, provision for whereby Gordy could write out their own warrants under Section 29 of the Defence Against the State Act. Uh, and more recently, he was successful in the Supreme Court in striking down uh, a provision in the, uh, the Citizenship Act uh, legislation uh, when the state sought to revoke his citizenship. Uh, and that is dealt with in the paper. And once again, we see the court's preference for basing a finding on constitutionality on procedural grounds rather than uh, on, if you like, an attack on substantive content of the act itself. In that case, the Supreme Court held that the um, uh, Section 19 of the Irish Nationality and Citizenship Act of 1956 did not have sufficient safeguards built into it and a sufficient provision for an independent appraisal of the differing interests between state and a person concerned. Uh, moving then to the uh, a final procedural matter that I'd just like to touch on before I wrap up, and it is a development concerning the bringing of constitutional challenges itself. It's a little bit anarchy this, so forgive it, but it, it's to do with how do you bring a, a, a challenge? Should it be by plenary summons or should it be by judicial review? Uh, following on a decision of the Court of Appeal in a case called Galvin recently, 
Uh, it does seem to be more and more a hard, I won't say a hardline position, but a um, the default position is you really need to go by plenary summons, which on one view is, is regrettable because it does mean potentially there are going to be access to justice issues. Judicial review can be preferable. It can be a cheaper method of proceeding. Uh, the cases get on more quickly, typically. The cases take less time, typically. They have available a legal aid scheme called the custody issue scheme, which is not ordinarily available in plenary, the plenary road. Uh, and also, uh, they're more finely tuned because they're sort of legal proposition-based rather than wider evidence-based. They do have downsides as well, and some cases, bluntly, do need a big bank of evidence and therefore are appropriate to be proceeded with by judicial review, but by a plenary uh, summons, where there's a full uh, amount of, uh, there's a, a greater opportunity for a very full evidential uh, uh, consideration to take place. But we offered the view, myself in April, that perhaps the test should be more case-specific and should assess whether the subject matter of the challenge the nature of the challenge, and whether, in fact, a big bank of evidence is or is not needed. And if it's essentially a legal point, which is fairly net, we offer the view that it should, should still be permissible and appropriate to bring proceedings by judicial review. In fairness to the Court of Appeal, they make it clear that they're not setting down a rigid rule. Uh, they trace their conclusions very much in utterances of the Supreme Court from earlier cases. But our, I suppose our concern is that a close to rigid rule requiring plenary actions appears to have been set down. The concern might be that if a person brings a challenge to the statute uh, by judicial review, they risk being non-suited, which is an unfortunate state of affairs. And I suppose the danger is, uh, is that you may have potentially unconstitutional statutes not going challenged by reason of this. And we just simply raise the issue. One wonders if some are, uh, if some are all not all, but if some of the 93 declarations of unconstitutional cases hadn't been brought that are carefully chronicled in Judge Hogan's text from 2015, uh, it would have been a tremendous pity and a major loss to Irish jurisprudence and we suggest to society. So we offer the view that worthy and appropriate challenges, hopefully in cases in years to come, will be considered uh, under the judicial review rubric, where of course there's an important facility, and this is clear from the Zelinsky case, which we haven't covered in the paper because it's 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 too large, uh, and that could be for other work. Um, that uh, there is a facility within the judicial review mechanism for switching from plenary for a court to direct it be now proceed by way of uh, full evidence by way of plenary challenge. Uh, there's a lot more in the paper that uh, paper that April has presented uh, and has written with myself. Uh, I want to conclude by thanking Mora for inviting me and for, for the Bar Council. And I'm not going to mention those, the number of people helped me, I hope they don't mind me mention, not mentioning my name, with the paper in addition to April. And thank you very much for allowing me to share the podium with the proper speakers you're now going to be listening to when I finally shut up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Thank you kindly. Um, and now our next speaker is Professor Claire Hamilton. Claire is Professor of Criminology at Maynooth University at the Department of Law. She is an author uh, extensively, 
having written, I believe, five books. And she has also published widely, both in national and in international journals. For example, in the British Journal of Criminology, in the European Journal of Criminology, and in the Theoretical Criminology Journal. My understanding, and I hope I have the title correct this time, Professor Hamilton, is that you're going to speak uh, on a paper entitled People DPP v JC, A Bad Day for Democracy in Ireland? Question mark. So thank you very much, Professor Hamilton, and I'll hand over to you now. Thank you. Thanks very much, Moira, um, and indeed thank you to uh, yourself and to the Bar Council for the uh, for the kind invitation this evening. Um, it's lovely to be here with you all, albeit virtually. Um, unfortunately, the in-person conference wasn't uh, wasn't possible. Um, so, so what I want to do with you um, this evening, um, over the next fifteen to twenty minutes or so. Um, is to uh, discuss the Supreme Court decision in People, DPP and JC, um, which, as many of you will know, um, overhauled the protectionist exclusionary rule in Ireland um, as uh, laid down in the decision in People, DPP and Kenny. And uh, in light of the conference themes, um, I want to consider specifically um, whether that decision can be uh, viewed as a bad day's work for um, Irish democracy. Um, uh, so obviously, uh, that's quite. It seems quite a provocative title, um, but um, I just like to suggest that, um, in light of the evidence, why the decision appears to have negatively impacted the rule of law and human rights in its jurisdiction, the matter is still far from settled, and, and for that reason, I've deliberately uh, posited um, it as a question uh, rather than an assertion. Um, so. In recent times, um, we've had quite a bit of speculation um, as to whether liberal democracy itself is under threat. Um, as Joe Biden has uh, repeatedly and very recently warned, um, democracy in the US and around the world finds itself in uh, grave peril. And in the last uh, four years, um, during the Trump administration, um, we probably had too many um, infractions of uh, democratic norms to mention. Closer to home then in the EU, uh, we've also had a series of illiberal measures, including indeed attacks on the judiciary that appear to signal um, a, a democratic decline in countries such as Poland and Hungary. Um, in the EU, we've also of course had Brexit and we have the rise of populist groups on the left and on the right, uh, which have been interpreted as in themselves by some commentators in themselves a crisis uh, for democracy. So in that context, uh, perhaps um, we in Ireland can consider ourselves um, to be in quite a good position. We, we may uh, feel a little bit smug, um, but I think that complacency uh, would be misplaced. Um, and without going into a, a great deal of detail um, about the problems uh, with accountability in Irish public life, um, I, I think the pandemic has thrown some of these issues into sharper relief. Um, and Michael McDowell, who, as you know, will uh, be speaking um, here tomorrow um, in a piece called Time to Reopen Our Democracy uh, in the Irish Times, um, has recently been very critical of the lack of discussion and oversight of very sweeping powers that have been vested in our ministers in response to the pandemic. Um, these arguments have also been echoed by the uh, Irish Council for Civil Liberties, 
we've called attempts to rush through this type of legislation, such as the mandatory quarantine legislation, as an affront to our democratic system of lawmaking. So to me, what these events um, in recent years, both in terms of the pandemic and both in terms of events um, in political life domestically and internationally, um, say to me, uh, they drive home the point um, that arbitrary rule in Western democracies is no longer something that is abstract. It's no longer theoretical. For many citizens around the world, it is a lived experience. In short, and to, to borrow a phrase from another um, of the speakers at tomorrow's conference, Baroness Helena Kennedy, it explodes the myth of the benign state. If the state ever was, um, uh, as Helena Kennedy writes, benign and vanilla flavoured, then um, our, our recent experience tells us emphatically that that is not the case. Indeed, if the US, the model of democracy and human rights once described so evocatively by Ronald Reagan as the shining city uh, upon the hill can experience such a dramatic fall from grace, then in my view, this should give all liberal democracies considerable pause for thought. So, so what has any of this got to do with the Irish exclusionary rule? Well, as Alan has written there, um, and you can see in the quote, um, it is in the criminal process where the government touches most dangerously on the lives of citizens. Again, remembering that the state is not necessarily benign. It's also the space where the rule of law comes under greatest pressure um, from instinct, passion, and where public emotions can run high. In relation to the exclusionary rule then in particular, um, it is one of the most controversial um, of the uh, rules of criminal law, I think that's fair to say. Um, but it can also be regarded as um, a rule that is both an instrument and a symbol of the rule of law and democracy. If we take the essence of the rule of law as denoting as Tamanaha uh, indicates there, the idea that the state and its officials are limited by law in the same way as everyone else then we can um, argue that the exclusionary rule performs three key functions. First of all, it acts as a check on illegal governmental behaviour. Second, it conveys the message that the law applies equally um, to everyone. Uh, and thirdly, it performs through the courts an educative function in terms of the importance uh, for citizens to follow the law. Of course, one key objection to these arguments is that the rule of law is also diminished when the guilty go free. And I think the response to that is that the risk of systemic abuse uh, of executive discretion is in the long term much more injurious to the rule of law than isolated acquittals resulting from the exclusion of evidence. The strong connection of the exclusionary rule to the rule of law, and particularly its symbolic function, I think can be seen in the fact that a, no, a significant number of countries transitioning to democracy in the 1980s and 1990s adopted strong, broad, categorical exclusionary rules, even though they were not required to do so by international human rights conventions. And I think it's important to underscore that point. This was a very much a, a, a voluntary decision on their part. They saw the robust exclusionary rule as a symbol of a break from past oppressive regimes. Likewise, I think it's no coincidence that in the unwinding of democratic freedoms, 
that has been initiated by the Law and Justice Party in Poland, and I've written about this uh, in my recent book, that the exclusionary rule was one of the first casualties of a number of reforms enhancing um, police detention and surveillance powers in 2016. So coming back to the decision in JC, um, we will recall um, that the case um, relaxes the uh, stricter exclusionary rule that was established in People, DPP and Kenny. Um, and it did so by reinterpreting the terms um, deliberate and conscious um, as referring to an agent's knowledge rather than uh, physical acts. And relatedly, by creating a good faith exception based on inadvertence. Um, the exceptional and significant uh, nature of the decision, I think, is captured very well in this quote from former Supreme Court Judge Niall Fenley, who described the decision as the most astounding judgment ever handed down by an Irish court. Niall Fenley was not the only person to be surprised by the decision um, in JC. And um, Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times immediately saw in the judgment a number of deleterious consequences for democracy. Um, his article, which appeared in the Irish Times one week after the decision was handed down, criticizes it for putting those um, who are exercising statutory authority above all of the rest of us and for holding those um, exercising power to a vague and subjective standard i.e. inadvertence, which denies any real accountability. And for him, this poses a very real challenge to the accountability that makes a, a republic real. So it was against this background um, that I approached the Irish Council for Civil Liberties um, to conduct some research into the effects of the JC decision. And we were very kindly supported in that enterprise by the um, Irish Research Council New Foundation Scheme. So over the course of a number of months, at the end of 2019 and start of 2020, we just got in there in time before the pandemic hit, um, I spoke to a number of criminal law practitioners um, about their experience of JC in practice. And we also administered a survey uh, which was completed by uh, 60 practitioners. So one of the key findings from the research was that the new rule is being applied in a predominantly inclusionary manner. Um, all of the interviewees I spoke to with experience of JC uh, being applied in practice um, and 63% of the survey respondents supported this view. Overall, defence practitioners expressed the view that the odds were firmly stacked against them in terms of the prospects of unconstitutionally obtained evidence being excluded at trial. Um, and indeed, one said that the advice being given to clients was that they only had a 10% chance of exclusion. Given the, the focus on the key concept of inadvertence, um, uh, practitioners were asked, uh, both in the survey and the interviews, whether they felt there was scope to challenge a claim of inadvertence once it was asserted by the prosecution. I think quite alarmingly, given that we're just talking about scope to actually challenge the assertion, not actually winning the application in any sense, um, over one third of respondents said there was no scope to even challenge uh, this. Uh, so I tried to unpack this a little bit um, in the interviews with practitioners. As you can see from the quotations, 
and to raise your attention to the fact that, again, in line very much with what Fintan O'Toole was saying, uh, this is something that's peculiarly within the knowledge of the individual concerned. And it's therefore very difficult um, to challenge that or to second guess that um, in court. The second factor that uh, practitioners drew attention to was, was courtroom dynamics, um, particularly given that in practice, judges operate on an assumption that people are doing their job properly rather than the other way around. It was also very clear from the research the decision was having a significant impact on rights. Um, and uh, for me, certainly having written in this area in the past, I was quite concerned about the impact on the presumption of innocence um, really before the case goes to trial. That seems to be where the decision was having the greatest impact. Uh, practitioners overwhelmingly, and it's actually quite difficult to do justice um, to the responses in, 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 this, in one slide, um, so I'd encourage you if, you, if you can, to look at the report, um, stated that it would result in more guilty pleas, uh, and rather concerningly talked about a, a chilling effect on bringing arguments about constitutional rights, because you know they are not going to win. Most concerning, I think, was this sense of defeatism and inertia that the decision seems to have precipitated, <coughs> excuse me, among the criminal bar, that the battle was over before it had even begun. Standing out then from a focus on individual rights to look at the impact on police and prosecutorial culture, something which is obviously important given the focus on accountability and democracy. Practitioners here um, spoke about JC as a get out of jail free card, um, a way of plugging a lot of gaps. And even uh, as you can see from the second interview uh, quotation there from interviewee seven, a way for the prosecution to avoid having to prove the lawfulness of a search. Similar sentiments then uh, also expressed in relation to the impact on policing culture, with respondents expressing concerns about the decision being a free pass for ignoring procedures, the real risk of a revisionist mindset leading to sloppy police work, and importantly, I think the largely unseen or invisible effects that the Kenny decision may have had on police behavior, but that perhaps weren't sufficiently appreciated because they are exactly that unseen. So, so where does this leave us um, in terms of our assessment of JC? Um, and can we agree with Fintan O'Toole's assessment of JC as a bad day's work for democracy? Well, as I indicated at the start, um, I think the appropriate answer at this stage is perhaps not just yet. Uh, and the reason I say this is that we're still just five years out from the JC decision, uh, with very little case law really from the Supreme Court on how the decision should be applied in practice. One of the strong threads through the majority judgments um, is that the appellate courts will correct any imbalance that arises in the application of new tests provide a robust response where necessary. Given the evidence that has been provided here today, I very much hope that the court sees fit to do so in an appropriate case. The other point is what I describe in the report as the safeguards which have been built into the decision. Um, and I see these as the provision for the scrutiny of decisions at a senior level, 
the presumption against admission, and the fact that an inadvertence does not extend to recklessness or gross negligence. Now, while the ICCL report would suggest quite strongly that these safeguards are not working as effectively as they should be, again, I think there is much scope for further guidance from the courts on how these protective mechanisms can be given substance in practice, as well as a form of words. In this in particular, I hope that the courts may perhaps look to examples of other jurisdictions, such as Canada, where reformulated exclusionary rules have not led to a predominantly inclusionary approach um, to, the, um, uh, to unconstitutionally obtained evidence. I think Canada is particularly instructive here, given um, research studies which consistently su uh, suggest a rate of con uh, exclusion of 66 to 70 percent of trial level and a, a very nuanced um, approach in the case law, recognizing that public cynicism can be generated not only when the guilty go free, but also when the courts fail to vindicate rights. So a, a very interesting connection there being forged between the vindication rationale for the exclusionary rule, which of course traditionally has been the underpinning of the rule in this jurisdiction, and the judicial integrity rule, which seems to be coming uh, more to the fore here uh, more recently. All told, I think, I think we're at a crossroads in relation um, to the Irish law of evidence. Do we want a thin um, exclusionary rule, a facsimile of justice as we once knew it, or do we want a rule of law approach to the exclusion of evidence, which takes seriously the conception of the exclusionary rule as a central element in protecting democracy and the rule of law in Ireland? In making that decision, we might want to think again on the words of Baroness Kennedy, to the effect that there is no decisive moment when freedom and democracy is lost to us. Yes, certainly, uh, as many practitioners said to me when I spoke to them about the decision, the sky didn't fall when the decision in Kennedy, uh, Kenny was overturned. Um, a decision, of course, that is symbolic perhaps of much of Irish criminal law and even legal culture but is perhaps more gradually, uh, as, as uh, Helena Kennedy has written there, with each successive thinning down of civil liberties, that the mortar of our democratic architecture is uh, destroyed. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm looking forward to the discussion later and I'll, I'll hand you back um, to, to Moira. Thank you very much, Professor. Um, and before we go into our third and fourth speaker, we have a, a short five minute break during which I'm hoping to ask two questions, one to Michal P and one to Professor Hamilton. Um, so we'll be returning to our third speaker who will be Mr. Justice O'Donnell in about five minutes. But during those five minutes, um, Michal, if you don't mind, I was just going to ask you to expand a little upon the um, repercussions as you see the negative repercussions of the Galvin decision. Certainly more. Um... Well, so I, I suppose the, the first uh, thing is just to say is that ordinarily um, there's, there's, broadly speaking, three ways in which a constitutional action can be brought challenging uh, the validity of a statute and it's, it's whether it accords with our constitution. 
That is by a plenary proceeding where it's oral evidence. Uh, and as I mentioned, that tends to take a little bit longer and uh, the hearing itself could run from, instead of being a day or two for a judicial review, could be a number of weeks. Uh, with less directed focus on legal propositions uh, than is the case with judicial review. Uh, th so that's one route. The other route is by a judicial review, which is uh, a system whereby permission is needed for an action to commence from the High Court. To, so it's two stages. Uh, and then the third way is, interestingly, the framers of our Constitution built into Article 40, that's the habeas corpus procedure, an entitlement to, to challenge the constitutionality of a statute uh, on foot of which a person is being detained, and to do that in the Article 40. Uh, and that's not uh, bogged down in procedure. That's a simple, immediate, and really quite wonderful process provided for in our Constitution, which again speaks to the desirability of there being access to this portal of justice uh, if there's a reasonable basis for challenging the validity of a statute. So the downside is procedural, but I suppose our concern is in one sentence, if it proceeds to be implemented as a rigid rule, you must go plenary, that raises immediate access to justice issues. David may not be able to take on Goliath. It'll be more expensive. It won't have the benefit of a custody issue scheme. It will take longer. It risks being bogged down and drowned out in irrelevant materials that perhaps one of the parties may think it's desirable to uh, fudge the case a bit with uh, irrelevancies. That's harder to do in a judicial review. It's easier to do in an expansive uh, plenary action. In fairness, a trial judge would retain control to, to try and prevent that from happening. And trial judges would also, on the plenary side, try to accommodate parties with an early date. But that's always sometimes not possible with discovery, interlocutory applications, and other matters that might hold up proceedings. So our concern is that from a practical point of view, any near rigid or even default rule requiring plenary only road uh, could give rise to serious access to justice issues and might cause a situation to arise where a potentially unconstitutional statute uh, is put beyond the reach of challenge. And that's not a good thing for society. Uh, and lastly, I'd just like to, to note that the Zelensky decision, which is a hugely important administration of justice point uh, decision that the Supreme Court recently decided, that was a judicial review. Uh, the NHV case and the right of uh, uh, asylum seekers to work, that uh, I think started out as a judicial review. The Damash proceeding, just, been, just many, many, many successful constitutional challenges brought by judicial review. And we feel it should be a case by case basis depending on the context of the nature of the challenge. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, so, Claire, I'm just going to, or Professor Hamilton, I should say, I'm just going to ask you one particular question, and it just arises out of a comment that you made and also Michal made. Everyone seems to make reference, fleeting reference to what's happening in Hungary and in various other jurisdictions within the EU. But do you perceive or do you believe that there's a possibility that the EU will at any stage step up to the mark and invoke the sanctions that they're allowed to do under the TEU, the Treaty of Europe, basically. Have you any opinion on that? 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question, isn't it, Moira? I mean, it's an excellent question. I, I wish I had the answer. Um, uh, you know, I, I think their performance to date has been very poor, um, you know, um, so I, I would very much hope, uh, but it's more hope than expectation, I have to say. Yeah. Okay, it's it's actually kind of the the answer we all have. We're wondering: Will anyone grasp that nettle? Will anyone have the backbone with which to grasp that nettle and do something about what's happening? I mean, when you see judges marching in the streets um, in support of other colleagues across Europe, um, did we ever think we'd see that day ten years ago? No. The fact that our own judiciary have to take to the streets in order to underscore the whole idea of fundamental rights is, I think, um, worrying, but also a great thing in itself that they've done that. But it is worrying that it has come to that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we're ready to start into what we might call the second half. Um, and we are. I'm getting up here. So um, I would like to welcome Mr. Justice Donald O'Donnell, who is going to speak to us on a paper entitled, A Constitution is a Standard to Rally Around. But before I do that, I would like to do um, what I hope will be a brief introduction. I've had to cut out pages two, three, and four so that it will fit in. So Mr. Justice O'Donnell is no stranger to the members of the bar. He was called to the bar here in the Republic of Ireland in 1982. He was called to the bar in Northern Ireland in 1989, and he became a member of the inner bar here in the Republic in 1995. He was a member of our Law Reform Commission from 2005 to 2012, and he was appointed to the Supreme Court in 2010. And as we all know, he's going to be taking up another post later this year in the Supreme Court. And Mr. O'Donnell, Mr. Justice O'Donnell has been responsible for many seminal and leading decisions in the Supreme Court. Uh, one of the most recent ones is the judgment in the case of Zalewski versus the adjudication officer and others regarding the administration of justice under articles 34 and 37. There are a multiplicity of other judgments. Um, I'm not going to even try and recite each and every one where he was the, the main author, but they include decisions such as Murphy v. Ireland from 2014. Um, we also have the case of the matter of uh, JJ from 2021. That's a seminal decision uh, on ch children's rights amendment. And without boring you all with just giving you a list of decisions, I'm now going to hand over to his honour, Mr. Justice O'Donnell. Thank you. So good afternoon and thank you very much, Maura, and thank you very much for the uh, invitation to address this bar conference. Um, uh, Self-doubt is a constant companion of most lawyers and certainly most judges, but one thing I have never doubted is the fact that the existence of an independent bar and indeed an independent legal profession is absolutely essential to the protection of the rule of law and the protection of human rights. And I'm delighted to see the, the Bar Council hosting its conference on these important issues. Now, um, this year has seen the publication of an important book, The Gun, the Ship and the Pen by the distinguished historian Linda Colley, who addresses the history of written constitutions. Born in the United Kingdom and working for some time in the United States, she has an interesting perspective that makes her, as she put it, not a convert to the use of written constitutions, but rather a candid friend. And among many of the interesting insights she offers from a historical perspective is that constitutions tell a story about ourselves 
as she puts it, a constitution like a novel invents and tells the story of a place and people. And I would add to that, that a constitution tells a story about ourselves and how we would like to be perceived, that is at our best. The broad historical perspective also provides an a further interesting insight. A story of constitutions around the world is in fact a story of a vast proliferation of written constitutions at different times in different countries and an overwhelming picture of failure. Most constitutions collapse, not indeed because of any legal defect in their structure, but rather because of the collapse or change in the country or regime in which they were conceived. But the vast majority of extant constitutions in the world are very young. Ireland is therefore something of a happy outlier in this regard. I think it is correct to see the 1937 constitution as an organic development from the Free State Constitution of 1922. And you might know that in 19, after the drafting of the 20, 1922 constitution, the drafting committee published a book, a survey of the other constitutions of the world, which they had considered in the drafting process. And in 1933, one of the key drafters of the Indian constitution came across that booklet in London and had it reprinted in India. But significantly, almost all of the constitutions surveyed then no longer exist. Um, so we, we can say that we have had almost a century of stable constitutional law with robust protection of fundamental rights enforceable by judicial review. And Professor Colley has something interesting to say about the durability and success of constitutions. To the extent that they function well, she says, they are characterized by the degree that politicians, the law courts, and the population concerned are all able and willing to put sustained effort into thinking about them, revising them where necessary, and making them work. And I think it's particularly helpful that Professor Colley does not speak of judges, but rather of the work of the law courts, which includes everyone working in the courts and in the legal profession more generally. And that's per particular, particularly apt in the context of this event. But it's also important that she emphasizes the need for engagement of the general population. The business of constitutional law is not the plaything of constitutional lawyers. It is one of the very few happy consequences of the pandemic and the consequent ob obligation to hold events online that this conference is being made free, be it available to interested members of the public. And when discussing the broad concepts of the rule of law and, the, and human rights, it's important that lawyers are not just outward looking, but also inwardly receptive, receptive to the perspectives of the public more generally. One other small piece of history is that the words rule of law and human rights both have an Irish context. The, as Lord Bingham has shown in his book, the concept of the rule of law goes back very far, but it's very popularly associated with the work of A.V. Dicey and his book, book, first book on the Constitution of the United Kingdom, published almost contemporaneously with the Home Rule uh, Bill of 1886, which, of which he was a virulent opponent. The first time, apparently, the words human rights were spoken, at least in Westminster, were when uh, a friend of Dicey's, but his opponent on this issue, J Sir James Bryce, later Lord Bryce, was, uh, was discussing some of the protections which were to be in included in the, hum in, in, the, um, in the Home Rule Bills. Um, and Tim Healy said, and it, what's interesting about that is Sir James Bryce was born in Belfast. And Tim Healy said, with his harsh Belfast accent, he will make no impact here. And I have to say, from my perspective, um, 
it's a matter of some pride that the first time that the word human rights were uttered in Westminster were in a harsh Belfast accent. And I hope um, human rights will continue to be spoken of in, Belf in a Belfast accent in the years to come. But I don't think the theme of this conference is intended to be self-congratulatory. I imagine if you could construct one of those word clouds showing the incidence of the present use of the words human rights or rule of law, you'd see a vast increase in today's picture compared with that which might have been generated, say, 50 or even 20 years ago. And furthermore, the context in which those words would be seen would be darker rather than celebratory. There is a, there is a perception touched on by Michal P that ideas which lawyers have regarded as so fundamental are under threat today across the world. In the immediate aftermath of the collapse of communism, history was supposed to be over. And the model of liberal Western democracy bound by law, protective of rights and a free market economy was supposed to have triumphed and proved itself by an evolutionary process to be the fittest. It was confidently expected that the future would simply see the relentless march of that model across the globe. And there was an idea promoted by the US and by the EU that judicial enforcement of human rights and a successful economy went hand in hand. There was a cottage industry of legal consultants going to Eastern Europe in particular to advise upon the structures necessary to establish a basic model which had been so admired in the Western world. It involved strong, predictable, independent courts and a constitu constitutional protection and indeed a clear code of bankruptcy and liquidation so that investors would know what the bottom line was if an investment failed. Today, the picture is very different and bleaker. In its annual survey of over 200 countries, Freedom House, the NGO, which measures these matters, has identified a st steady decline over the past 15 years in the level of political rights and civil liberties guaranteed across the globe. These are not rights or the aspect of those rights which are regularly contested in, in our courts. They are the core rights we would regard as fundamental and almost beyond argument. The right to vote, to free speech, to associate, to liberty, to equality, to freedom from torture and even the right to life. And in their 2021 report, Freedom House reported that democracy's defenders are sustaining heavy losses in the struggle against authoritarian foes, shifting the international balance in favor of tyranny. It's easy to be complacent about this in Ireland, since Ireland scores 97 out of a possible 100 on the Freedom House Index, and even then comes out ahead of some long established Western democracies. But we have no reason to be complacent. The first thing I think we have to recognize, however, is there's a subtext in the language. The phrase rule of law conveys something quite different from the phrase law and order. And together with the phrase human rights, it's much employed and deployed. Although as the late Lord Bingham observed in his book, The Rule of Law, it is little understood. Um, I think Lord Bry both Lord Bryce and A.V. Dicey would surprise, be surprised to see the words they used in the context in which they are sometimes used today. And we think, I think we need to be wary of the use of these terms in general, um, uh, in, in some way as at, some, at best some moral trump card in ongoing arguments, and at worst as a form of bludgeon to silence debate, because doing so undermines respects for the very ideas themselves and encourages the very forces threatening them and democratic values in general. Second, um, there is, I think, a mistaken perception that Ireland is not vulnerable is not vulnerable to the forces now being felt across the glo globe because the most visible challenges to the rule of law and to human rights uh, have involved nativist politics, ultranationalism, right-wing authoritarianism that do not seem to have achieved much, much traction in Ireland to date. 
But these forces that have given rise to an assault upon Western liberal values are not primarily ideological in nature and do not fit easily into the old traditional distinction of left-right or liberal-conservative. It's probably true that centre-left social democratic parties who dominated the scene in the, last 20th, in the late 20th century in Western Europe have suffered most. But it is not their historic opponents on the centre-right who have benefited. The forces that have given rise to this marked shift are global and therefore are capable of being felt in Ireland as much as elsewhere, even if they emerge in a different way. First and most obviously, globalization and its impact on economies around the world applies in Ireland by, de by definition, and perhaps even more so since we have a very open economy. Um, the shift of economies from manufacturing to finance is also global, as is the impact of technology, which has enhanced these developments. The flattening of incomes in traditional jobs occurring alongside the showering of extraordinary rewards on others uh, for developments that may appear to have no obvious social value or perhaps be sometimes socially harmful is a consequence of developments in technology which can apply and be felt here as much as any, anywhere else. Most of all, social media has completely altered um, public affairs and social discourse, if that is not too gentle a word. Elections basic to democracies are now fought online and not even necessarily by human beings. The stock and trade of social media, as we know, is snap instantaneous judgments, the more controversial and attention grabbing, attention grabbing the better. The reinforcement and indeed exaggeration of pre-existing views, not to say prejudices, and sometimes venomous assaults on opponents facilitated by anonymity and a generalized hostility to groups identified as elites. Now, why should that matter to us in particular? Um, for more than 200 years, it has been said, as Michal P quoted in the, wor the words of Alexander Hamilton, that the judiciary, or at least the administration of justice, is the least dangerous branch of government. Today, it is certainly the, most le the least well adapted to the new well order and the most vulnerable to the type of criticism which is now commonplace. That is not an evolutionary defect which can be eliminated. It is a structural feature and not a flaw that makes the law but it makes the law and the law courts a particularly easy target for the worst parts of online of the new online world. The legal process is everything social media is not. Judgments are not instantaneous. They are at best measured, the product of careful debate, consideration, reflection, and sometimes revision on appeal. They are not limited to 280 characters. Instead, and as anyone who has labored through any of my judgment will know, they go on and on. And um, the reason is, of course, that apart from the lawyer's disease of prolixity, some issues, indeed most issues, which are sufficiently complex and debatable to justify litigation, simply cannot fit within 280 characters, um, or even sometimes 280 closely reasoned paragraphs. As Albert Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not more so. In addition to this, there's a very strong convention that judges do not engage in public controversy, do not discuss matters which could, could be the subject of litigation before a case or even afterwards. Parties are entitled to have a case decided by an independent and impartial person and decided moreover only on the facts and arguments addressed and nothing else. Judges are expected to speak therefore once and normally once only in the context of a formal judgment. They are not expected to answer back. However, one of the driving forces of populism is the identification of a so-called elite remote from day-to-day -day life who nevertheless make decisions for the bulk of society. Judges are increasingly cast in this role together with politicians, and there is an increasing tendency to blur the distinction between them, 
and to subject courts and judges to increasingly reductive, simplistic, and personalized comment commentary. In the case of the judiciary, they are a particularly easy target because they cannot, do, cannot and do not answer back. 30 years ago, the respect for the separation of powers in the US and the United Kingdom respectively would have been represented, represented as the gold standard for all other countries. We have now seen the example of a sitting president in one jurisdiction attacking decisions of the courts explicitly by reference to the identity and background of judges delivering the decision. And of course, there was an infamous and personalized attack upon judges in the UK as enemies of the people, reflecting no doubt in the mainstream media only what was being said online. But if we ignore those examples and look at the tops of the trees in the legal forest, as it were, we can also see the, the direction the wind is blowing in less high profile circumstances. The recent manifesto of the Conservative Party in the last United Kingdom general election contained a promise to update the Human Rights Act and administrative law to ensure there is a proper balance between the rights of individuals, our vital national security and effective government, and said after Brexit, we will also need to look at broader aspects of our constitution, the relationship between the government, parliament and the courts. Um, now, um, what can we do in the face of these, of these changes. Um, to, to return to what something Professor Colley observed, the maintenance of constitutional value, values involved not just the law courts or lawyers, but crucially involves the population. It is important therefore that we do everything to enhance the engagement and support for the legal system by the public. 75 years ago, in the midst of a world war in which Western democracies faced, uh, um, faced a, 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 an existential threat and in which much of the co concepts of human rights and human rights law were, subse were, were subsequently developed. An old, at the time, little alone judge stood up in Central Park in New York to speak about the spirit of liberty. What Judge Learned Hand said then and there is relevant here and now. He said the protection of liberty did not depend on lawyers or courts. It depended upon a belief in the importance of the system being embedded in the hearts of men and women whom it served. And that message is as relevant today as it was then. I want to suggest some two positive and one perhaps negative things that, that we might do or think that, that can be done to reinforce uh, the position of the administration of justice in, in our uh, state. Firstly, there's the question of judicial appointments. Now that's something which is before the Oireachtas at the moment, and I have no intention of saying anything novel about that. I'm going to say something, in fact, very old uh, and repeat something that was said by the judiciary here more than seven years ago in January 2014 in a very detailed submission on uh, the reform of the system, which perhaps bears uh, consideration again today. And what was said there were three, were three things, among others, that the current system was not, was, was not fit for purpose and the generally uh, successful um, uh, appointment process had been, had been achieved in spite of rather than because of the system. Secondly, that the fundamental test for the appointment of any person to the judiciary was and should be only that they to secure the best person for the job. And thirdly, in, the, in particularly relevant in the context in which we are speaking, that respect for the system of administration of justice commences with respect for the system of appointment to, to, uh, of judges. The second area where, where, which we might look at and is the question of legal costs. 
I don't want to make any facile point by simply criticizing costs. Lawyers did not create the system under which they work, nor did they create a system in the common law world which tends to throw the cost of litigation upon parties, whereas in the civil law system, much more is absorbed by the state. Um, nor do, and I also want to acknowledge the, the extent to which work is done pro bono within the legal profession in Ireland, and indeed the basis on which many lawyers act for very minimal remuneration or not at all. I read recently of praise being given to a lawyer in the United Kingdom who it was said actually turned away paying work because they, because they were engaged in a pro bono case, something that I think occurs routinely in Ireland. Like most complex issues, this is a multifactorial issue and there is no simple solution. There are reforms currently suggested by the Civil Justice Reform uh, Group chaired by Mr Justice Kelly in an attempt to streamline and make, make less costly civil lit litigation. The Chief Justice has established an important initiative in respect of access to justice, bringing together the professions, the Legal Aid Board, the Free Legal Advice Centres and the Department of Justice. Um, uh, and, and we may have to uh, reconsider the question of third party funding. But however the, this is approached, when one views, for example, cases reported in the Irish reports for 1932, 42 or 52, there's quite a dramatic contrast with those reported in, in 2022. Some of that is inevitable in the changing nature of legal disputes. But there are a series of private disputes which occupied the courts in the early part of the 20th century and which of their nature still recur. And if private citizens cannot feel they can go to court and have the only dispute which matters to them determined by an impartial judge, or if by contrast, they feel they have to settle a case which they would pre much prefer to dispute, because, but because the cost of a hearing is, are, is prohibitive, then it's difficult to maintain respect for, which we, for, for what we rather grandly call the rule of law. A third and negative thing I think we can all do is to think before we speak. Um, as I said at the outset, um, the language of human rights and rule of law is immensely attractive as a moral trump card. Everyone wants them on their side, no one wants to oppose them. As lawyers, um, and I, uh, judges practicing lawyers, not just litigators and academic lawyers, we are by nature disputatious. We've been trained to resist orthodoxy, to see the other side of argument and uh, every argument and to put our own side in, in, in the strongest possible terms. Inevitably, people take different views. If, the, if issues were not contestable, they would not get to the courts and in particular to the Supreme Court. Um, but engaging in these legal debates about what decisions are right or wrong or what pieces of legislation are good or, or bad, we should, I think, be slow to reach for the nuclear weapon of asserting that the rule of law is imperiled by some piece of legislation or this or that decision. Um, taking this approach risks, I think, undermining a general respect for the decisions of the court and for legislation, and at the same time risks devaluing the concept of the rule of law and of human rights in public discourse at a time when we have more need of them than ever. We, we need, I think, to recognize that in most, if not all cases, the rule of law is being, being maintained by the process involved in legal argument and in independent impartial decision-making, whatever view we may wish to take about the outcome of the case. The title of this talk is taken from something said in 1794, just around the same time as Alexander Hamilton penned the famous Federalist Papers uh, letter um, containing the reference to the administration of justice as the least dangerous branch. In 1794, 
the great feminist Mary Wollstonecraft wrote that a constitution is a standard for the people to rally around. It is a pillar of government and the bond of all social unity and order. And that has a resonance with something my father was fond of quoting the words of James Finton Lawler. The people of Ireland will follow the banner that fits nearest, that flies nearest the sky. The standard in every sense of the word of the rule of law in Ireland should be the highest banner. But the business of holding it there is not just a job for judges or even for lawyers. It requires us all to do so. And if we do so, our constitution and our constitutional law will continue to tell a story about us um, that, that we can be proud of and will continue to pre protect the rule of law and human rights. So thank you very much. I'll hand back to you now, Maura. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Justice O'Donnell. Um, and now we're going to move on to our fourth and final speaker for this afternoon. And that is our Attorney General, Mr. Paul Gallagher, Senior Counsel. Paul is going to present a paper entitled Future Challenges to the Rule of Law. So I'm just going to give a short background uh, to uh, Paul Gallagher, our Attorney General. Uh, Paul has been practicing at the Irish Bar for over 40 years. Um, he was called to the inner bar, becoming a senior counsel in Silk in 1991. He became a bencher of the King's Inns in 2005. He's a former vice chair of the Bar Council of Ireland. He also lectured and tutored in law at the University College Dublin and at the King's Inns. Uh, he has practiced widely in the areas of commercial law, European law and public law. He is an adjunct professor of law at UCD. In addition, he is a fellow of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. He is a fellow of the International Society of Barristers. He was Ireland's nominee to the arbitration and conciliation panels of the International Centre of Settlement of Investment Disputes for over a decade. He has served as an advisor on the high-level advisory group for the future EU justice policy. He is also a director of the Irish Centre for European Law, and he was our Attorney General during the years 2007 to 2011, and he has been reappointed as our Attorney General last year, 2020. So I hope with that introduction that our Attorney General Paul Gallagher is now ready to speak. Thank you, Attorney General. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maura. Um, I, I do want to speak about future challenges to the rule of law, and perhaps not future challenges as many people envisage, some of which have been dealt with by Mr. Justice O'Donnell, Michal um, P, and by Professor Hamilton. I want to take a somewhat different approach, because I think apart from the traditional challenges identified by the previous speakers, I think there are some new and quite immense challenges that not just Ireland, but globally, we have to address. The concept of the rule of law has evolved over the years. As Mr. Justice O'Donnell mentioned, Dicey's original formulation of the rule of law, which really had three components. The first is that a person can only be punished and made to suffer uh, a penalty as a result of a law established, a breach of the law established in the ordinary legal manner. Secondly, that it is a characteristic of a country 
that no man or woman is above the law, no matter what their position. And thirdly, he taught uh, in nationalistic terms that the rule of law in England had the advantage that rights were determined in individual cases brought before the courts, rather than as he contrasted the position in foreign constitutions, where he said such security as was given to the rights of individuals appear to result from the general principles of the constitution. Uh, perhaps a disparaging view of the protections that constitutions can provide, uh, and in particular, by reference to our constitution in this context, which as Mr. Justice O'Donnell said, has said has stood the test of time. Subsequently, Dicey's description of the components of the rule of law was widely criticized. It was regarded as significantly xenophobic and narrow focused. More cynically, in modern times, Professor Jeremy Waldron described the rule of law in different terms. He said, commenting on the decision of the US Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore about who had won the 2000 presidential election and in which the rule of law was invoked by both sides, that there was a widespread impression that utterance of those magic words meant little more than hooray for our side. Mr. Bumble in Oliver Twist also had a fairly cynical view of lawyers and the rule of law. He was more cynical still when he said that if the law supposes that, the law is an ass and idiot. And one of the rebels in Shakespeare's Henry VI said, the first thing we do is let's kill all the lawyers. Well, the rule of law, of course, depends, however described, on both lawyers and a judicial system, as well, of course, upon a state that observes and respects the most fundamental principles of law. Lord Bingham, in his book, The Rule of Law, identified what are widely regarded now as the principal constituents of the rule of law, accessibility of legislation, questions of legal rights and liabilities should ordinarily be resolved by application of law and not the exercise of discretion. And I want to come back later in my talk to this exercise of discretion and the challenges it can pose for the rule of law. Thirdly, the laws of the land should apply equally to all, save for a differentiation is justified. Fourthly, and very importantly, ministers and public officers at all levels must exercise their powers conferred on them in good faith for the purpose for which the powers were conferred without exceeding the limits of such powers and not unreasonably. Five, the law must afford adequate protection of fundamental human rights. Six, means must be provided for resolving without prohibitive cost or inordinate delay, bona fide civil disputes where the parties themselves, which the parties themselves are unable to resolve, adjudicative procedures provided by the state should be fair, and the rule of law 
requires compliance by the state with its obligations in international law as in national law, perhaps a rule that might be better remembered by some prominent countries in recent times. But is this a complete description of the rule of law? It is the one that we're most familiar with, but we must recognize that statements of principle are perhaps easier to state than to apply to specific cases. Moreover, the focus on these constituents of the rule of law misses some important aspects of the overall legal system, which fundamentally must protect the rule of law. It doesn't focus on the application and interpretation of those laws or on the scope of the law within a modern society. Those, I believe, are important matters that are worthy of separate consideration in any proper analysis of what the rule of law means in a society in 2021. The rule of law can be affected by the approach that judges take to interpretation and decision-making. So far as we are concerned in this country and in the UK and the US, judges do create law. And that gives rise to a fundamental issue. What are the limitations on that power? For many years it was denied, but it has now been recognized quite expressly. However, when John Roberts, the present Chief Justice, was nominated by President George Bush for that position in 2005, he was determined not to repeat the mistakes made nearly 30 years earlier by Robert Bork, a candidate whose nomination was blocked by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Unlike Bork, Roberts avoided taking clear positions on contentious issues. He persuaded senators to believe that he was not the conserv conservative ideologue that Borg had, Borg had been. He said, judges are like umpires. Umpires do not make rules, they apply them. But could that possibly be correct? Lord Bingham was of the view that making law was an entirely proper judicial function, provided it was exercised within certain limits. He identified a number of warning signs on the road to lawmaking, ranging from no entry, stop and give way, and slow down. Lord Bingham listed five cases in which one or other of these signs should be heeded by judges who were considering making new law. One, where reasonable and like-minded citizens have legitimately ordered their affairs on the basis of a certain understanding of the law. Two, where although a rule of law seemed to be defective, its amendment calls for a detailed legislative code who, which qualifications, exceptions and safeguards cannot feasibly be introduced by judicial decision. Three, where the questions involve an issue of current social policy on which there is no consensus within the community. Four, where an issue is the subject of current legislative activity. And five, where the issue arises in a field far removed from judicial experience. 
Lady Hale in 2017 said that in our common law world, we cannot and do not pretend that the law is clear and a simple set of rules which can be readily applied to a given set of facts. She disagreed with Lord Reed's classic metaphor that the law is to be found hidden in some Aladdin's cave in all its splendor. Lord Lloyd Jones of the Supreme Court in 2018 said, it is accepted that judges have the power to make new law, but what is the proper role of judges in a common law system? Sir Stephen Sedley, delivering the African lecture in 2001, said that many judges believe not without reason that certainty is the law's greatest virtue, that to counterpose it to justice is to miss the point that uncertainty in the law is an injustice on the grand scale. Others hold that where justice and precedent come into conflict, it is precedent which ought to give way in the interest of the very justice which it is there to serve. Finally, said Lord Atkin, finality, said Lord Atkin, is a good thing, but justice is better. The two positions are locked forever in an arm wrestling context, contest which neither possesses the strength to win outright. What one sees in the daily life of the laws is their constant lurching to and from. Just as common law judges make laws, they also unmake it. They overrule past decisions. As Lord Reed put it in West Midland Baptist Association versus Birmingham Corporation, we cannot say the law was one thing yesterday, but has to be something different tomorrow. If we decide that the existing rule is wrong, we must decide that it has always been wrong. However, in more recent times, courts in the US, India and the EU have all asserted the right in certain categories of case to overrule a decision only with prospective effect. In Spectrum Plus, the House of Lords held that in a suitable case, it would do so too. The effect of this is that judges can now not only say that the law was one thing yesterday and another thing tomorrow, they can actually admit that they are doing this. This represents a very significant power, which is not embraced in the definition of rule of law set out by Lord Bingham. This is to be contrasted with Article 5 of the French Civil Code, which has been part of the code since its inception at the beginning of the 19th century. It provides that judges are not fitted to adjudicate in cases before them by way of statement of general principles or statutory construction. And that brings me to something that I believe is a fundamental aspect of the rule of law, and in common law countries in particular, but more generally. And that is the quality of judicial reasoning. If judges have the power to make and unmake laws, then the quality of the reasoning is vital if that law and those decisions is to have respect. If it is to be properly understood, and if it is to have the impact it assuredly does 
in common law countries. And in that context, if I may reference the JC decision referred to by Professor Hamilton, and with respect, I take a very different view of that decision. I think if one looks at the reasoning of the majority of the court, the reasoning is coercive. It identifies that DPP and Kenny was itself a misinterpretation or overlooking of DPP and O'Brien. It does not posit a binary choice between exclusion and inclusion. Rather, it maintains a very strong exclusionary rule, but refined in a way that supports rather than detracts from the judicial system, the criminal law system, and recognizes the different nature of criminal law and criminal activity in a 21st century country. It reasons very closely and carefully why it believes that DPP and O'Brien was wrongly interpreted in Kenny, why the Kenny exclusionary rule was so extensive that it was not a rule that was followed in any other common law jurisdiction. Nowhere in the judgment nor in the arguments of the court was a rule of the severity of DPP and Kenny identified as existing in any other common law country. The closest that any other country came to such a rule was the US prior to the decision in, Leon, in, in the Leon case. But no other country had such a strict rule and the majority identified how it could wreak significant injustice in particular cases, undermine the rights of victims and the protection of society. So it's very important, it seems to me, that when we recognize the role of judges in identifying the law, and when we criticize judgments, that we do so by a close analysis of the reasoning, and that makes the reasoning vital to the respect which the law must maintain if we are to maintain the rule of law. The difficulty in identifying the scope for judicial intervention and the extent of the legal sphere in a modern democracy has been the subject of a controversy in which Lord Sumption and Sir Stephen Steadley have, Sedley have played a very prominent role. Lord Sumption is worried about the extent of the scope of the law, which he sees as part of the expanding empire of law. I think he identified 3,000 new criminal offences since the 1990s. But he also cautions on the role that judges should play in determining issues. What are the issues that are justiciable? Where does the role of the judges stop and the role of politicians begin. He argues strongly for clear boundaries to the rule of law and more particularly to the role of the law and more particularly the role of judges within the legal system. He said that English judges have overstepped the mark and they are too willing to rule against the government and they conjure rights from thin air in order to find government policy wanting and that this reduces little more, produces little more 
than the advancement of judges' opinions under the guise of legal education. Sir Stephen Sedley, who was a very distinguished judge of the Court of Appeal, strongly criticizes Lord Sumption's position, accusing him of basing his argument on a non, uh, an unprecedented and sometimes poorly presented, sorry, an unrepresented and unrepresentative, excuse me, and sometimes poorly presented set of cases, and of ignoring the great lengths to which the courts go when attempting to work out whether it's acceptable for judges to adjudicate in a particular matter. This reflects a much broader debate about the merits of the so-called legal constitutionalism and political constitutionalism. The issue of whether or not there is judicial overreach is a fundamental issue. And irrespective of which side you take one of profound importance, perhaps on occasions, if not more frequently, lawyers fail to pay sufficient attention to the constitutional basis of democracy and in particular the important role played by politicians in that constitutional framework. As Lord Sumption points out, politicians have the ability to reach democratic compromises. Courts do not. And they also are in the best position to interpret what society requires and perhaps will accept. George Orwell famously dismissed the world of politics as a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. We must respect the legitimacy of the political order and recognize that that legitimacy can easily be undermined by different forces in modern society. While Lord Sumption's complaints of judicial overreach are not fully supported by any explanatory theory or principle, his identification of the issue as being of importance is, in my view, very opposite. And while, as Judge O'Donnell said, the judicial system and the rule of law depend on the respect for judges and the role that lawyers play within that system. It also depends on respect for the role of politicians and the role politicians play within that system. This issue of what is the proper scope for judges and for politicians is one that has obviously predated Lord Sumption's dynamic intervention in recent times. The great legal philosopher Lon Fuller said that certain are said that polycentric matters or problems are unsuitable for adjudication by the courts. He said any decisions about polycentric problems are likely to have multiple consequences, each with its own complex repercussions for many other people consequences which judges are ill-placed to judge. Courts have access to a narrow range of information, information presented to them by legal counsel for the litigants. Legal disputes before the court are presented in a bivalent form, where the broader implications for society as a whole are not and cannot be fully canvassed. Judges of expertise and training in the law have expertise and training in how to apply legal techniques, but nothing equips them to engage in reform or a radical extension of the law. They neither have the legitimate institutional legitimacy nor the competence to do so. 
Ronald Dworkin attempted to rely on the distinction between principles and policies for the purpose of distinguishing the role of the courts and the legislature. Dworkin defined principle as a requirement of justice or fairness or some other dimension of morality. And policy as a kind of standard that sets out a goal to be reached gen generally, an improvement of some economic, political, social feature of the community. There is, however, no bright line, and I don't pretend to have an answer, but I do think the question is fundamental to those who respect the rule of law, and we must debate it and try to understand it. This tension between the judicial and political sphere was recognised by the Supreme Court in Friends of the Irish Environment. Chief Justice Clark said in paragraph 8.9, what needs to be guarded against is allowing for a blurring of the separation of powers by permitting issues which are more properly political and policy matters to impermissibly drift into the judicial sphere. Where it is possible properly to derive rights from the constitution, then no such risk arises. Where, however, judges are simply asked to identify rights which they consider might be a good thing, then the separation of powers is truly blurred. Indeed, in this context, there are common uh, considerations between those issues and questions of standing already addressed, allowing even well-motivated parties to rely on constitutional rights, which they do not enjoy, likewise runs the risk of blurring the lines between the judicial and other powers of the state. I just want to deal briefly, I know I'm running out of time, but there are two other important matters I want to address. The first is judicial discretion. Writing in the early 1970s, Marvin Frankel, later distinguished judge of the federal courts, believed that the rule of law calls for a body of impersonal rules applicable across the board, binding on judges as well as everybody, everyone else. In 1981, a large study conducted by him involving 208 federal judges who were exposed to the same 16 hypothetical cases was uh, conducted by him. Its central findings were stunning. In only three of the 16 cases was there a unanimous agreement to impose a prison term. Even where most judges agreed that a prison term was appropriate for a crime, there was a substantial variation in the lengths of the prison terms recommended. In one fraud case in which the mean prison term was 8.5 years, the longest term was life in prison. In another case, the mean prison term was 1.1 years, yet the longest prison term recommended was 15 years. He advocated for the introduction of sentencing guidelines, which were introduced by the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. A more recent study conducted in the US by the economist Sentil Muliatan and four colleagues analyzed 750 cases in New York City between 2008 and 2013. Cases in which someone had been arrested and the decision had to be taken as to whether to release the defendant on bail or detain them or to set a cash bail. The researchers could then see who had gone on to commit further crimes. They then used a portion of these cases, 220,000, to train an algorithm 
to decide whether to release, detain, or set bail. And they used the remaining cases to check whether the algorithm had done a good job or not relative to judges. The human judges did not do well. This researcher's algorithm could have reduced crime while on release by almost 25% by jailing a better selected group of defendants. Alternatively, they could have jailed 40% fewer people without any increase in crime. Thousands of crimes could have been prevented or thousands of people released pending trial purely as a result of the algorithm outperforming human judges. I don't recommend that we introduce an algorithm anytime soon, but I do say that we do need to examine sometimes propositions that we tritely recite without actually studying what is the evidence that supports those propositions. And as to the future, what are the real challenges? In my view, the technological challenges in a post-truth society create the most immense danger in terms of human rights. The merger of biotech and infotech and the growth of AI confronts us with the biggest challenges humankind has ever encountered and perhaps which humankind is least well equipped to deal with. They create enormous challenges for human rights and while in theory human rights can provide protection, that protection can in reality only be provided by special and clearly thought out legislation. Computers have made the financial system so complicated, very few humans can understand it. AI improvements have reached a point where humans cannot make any sense of finance. What will be the effect of this on the political and legal process? Will our laws be able to catch up in time? Will they be sufficiently sophisticated to protect us? Biotech and infotech give us the power to manipulate the world inside us and outside us. Engineers, entrepreneurs, and scientists are hardly aware of the political and legal implications of their decisions. And certainly they do not represent anyone. Ordinary people might not understand that artificial intelligence and biotechnology can alter our future in ways that have never been imagined. We cannot even reach consensus on the questions, not to mind on how we might meet the legal challenges. The technological revolution might soon push billions of humans out of the job market and create a massive new useless class leading to social and political upheaval. This throws up potentially immense human rights problems if we take the protection of human dignity seriously. On the 7th of December, 2017, a critical milestone was reached in AI, not when a computer defeated a human at chess, that happened a long time ago, but when Google's Alpha Zero program defeated the Stockfish 8 program. Stockfish 8 was the world's computer chess champion of 2016. It had access to centuries of accumulated human experience in chess, as well as to decades of computer experience. It was able to calculate 70 million chess positions per second. In contrast, 
Alpha Zero performed only 80,000 such calculations per second. And its human creators never thought it any chest strategies, nor even standard openings. Alpha Zero used the latest machine learning principles to self-learn chess by playing against itself. Out of 100 games, the novice Alpha Zero played against Stockfish. Alpha Zero won 28 and tied 72. It did not lose even once. It learned nothing from any human. The implications of AI and the ability of computers to self-learn is immense. We have no regulations. We have no rules that govern that. In November 2018, a young Chinese scientist used the CRISPR technology to edit embryos and remove a gene that produces a receptor for HIV. It led to the birth of twin girls, the first designer babies. We have no rules, no laws to protect against that. Urgent consideration needs to be given to issues raised by AI, biotech, and infotech. We are living not only in a post-truth society, but notionally in a knowledge society where the paradox of knowledge, as referred to by A.C. Grayling in his recent book, The Frontiers of Knowledge, applies. There is available more knowledge than ever, but so little of it is understood by so many people. This, in my view, is the great challenge, not to diminish the other challenges that the other speakers have so eloquently identified. I want to leave you on two other points, one a light note and the other perhaps slightly more serious. Talking about AI and infotech, Yesterday, I received an email asking, was I a lawyer looking for a new revenue stream? It was from somebody called Zolo Munder, the CEO of Codelex Legal Tech. And he was writing to let me know about Lexup, a lawyer-to-lawyer lawyer, legal document marketplace. Lexup is a marketplace that enables lawyers to share and sell legal document examples directly to others around the world. I was asked to think of it like eBay or Amazon for legal documents, or a, a democratized PLC where you can create your own legal document job. Lawyers from over 70 countries have already registered, and all you need to start doing is putting your documents to work by registering and uploading your documents. That takes two minutes and costs nothing. The Law Society in England have predicted that by 2015, I think over a third of existing legal jobs will be replaced by AI. So we have challenges as a profession and the role played by the bar in the protection of the rule of law is fundamentally vital. I don't want to recite banalities but the role played by barristers in the future, an independent bar equipped with great learning and intelligence and specialization have a vital role to play. And as Judge O'Donnell mentioned, already play a vital role in access to justice. 
But the bar, like all other sections of the law and the legal system, must also face up to these challenges. And finally, in terms of the rule of law in Ireland, as has been pointed out, we rate very high on any index of the rule of law. The Irish government promotes, promotes the rule of law project, which is also promoted by the bar, and recognise recognizes Ireland's advantage as a place where the rule of law is observed. It's advantage in commercial and economic terms and as a provider of legal services. But it eloquently speaks to the importance of that Dicean principle, modified by the sophisticated challenges and evolutions and developments that have occurred since Dicey's time and which present quite a unique but vital challenge for us all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Attorney General. Um, that old phrase, food for thought there. I was going to use a quotation from Aristotle. It is more proper that law should govern than any one of its citizens. But I'm starting to think that the word citizen needs to be changed than any one of its computers or any one of its AI programs after that particular speech. Um, so rather than go to a panel discussion, I hope it's okay with everyone that I'm just going to go straight to the Q&A because we have quite a few Q&A here. So I'm going to start, if it's okay, with Professor Hamilton. Um, do you think there is friction between the modern need for greater speed, efficiencies, and competition on the one hand, and the requirement for due process and the rule of law on the other hand? Sorry yeah. to throw that at you straight away. It's, quite, it's a reasonably complicated question. Do you think there is friction with between the modern need for greater speed, speed efficiencies and competition on the one hand, and the requirement for due process and the rule of law on the other hand. Yeah, yeah I do. And indeed, there's a lot of um, criminological um, research actually generated on that very issue. Um, so people have written about how uh, managerialism um, has resulted in, has diminished due process essentially internationally, with a lot of discussion as well about the administrationization of criminal justice um, and uh, indeed uh, the autonomy of kind of key actors such as prosecutors being eroded uh, around the globe. So absolutely I do, it's kind of, um, it, as you say, it's quite a complex issue um, and uh, it would require uh, perhaps a fuller answer than I can give this evening, but um, I absolutely agree there is a tension there um, and that that push towards efficiency is undercutting the presumption of innocence and rule of law as well. That trend is definitely there. Okay. Thank you for that. Next question, and I hope there'll be a volunteer to answer this. Um, do the speakers think that an overly complex exclusionary rule is unlikely to be applied rigorously in local courts in Ireland and does not reflect the practical experience of local district and circuit court practice? So I can repeat that again, because I know it's, um, you don't have a Q&A list in front of you. But do the speakers think that an overly complex exclusionary rule is unlikely to be applied rigorously in local courts in Ireland and does not reflect the practical experience of local district and circuit courts? 
excusing the pun, let's not rush to judgment. Um, Michal, I'm going to ask you, sorry. Sorry, Mari, I can just chip in to get the ball rolling on this. And just to say what the report said, um, which is that there was quite a bit of variation on this, um, particularly at district court level. So um, I interviewed a number of practitioners and they actually came to different conclusions on what was happening in relation to the exclusion rule at district court level one, saying largely inclusionary one, the opposite. So um, I, I think there, there is certainly an issue in terms of consistency of application at that level. Okay, thank you. I'm going to move on to another question now. Um, in public discourse of the rule of law and human rights, there is sometimes a perception by the public of elitism within the legal profession and the judiciary. Do the speakers have any views on whether the principles of diversity and inclusion would play a tangible role in building a diverse legal profession, which is more reflective of society? Justice O'Donnell, you moved your head, so I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't um, mind. No, I, I really don't think I should comment on that, uh, Maura. Fair yeah. enough. But then I'll go to, to who's moving next. Michal, you've moved. Sorry, uh, General, then. Did you, Maura, but one point I'd make uh, that's perhaps uncontroversial in that context is the, 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 the necessity for uh, principles of diversity and inclusion uh, in the selection of our judges and also in the building of uh, the necessity for a diverse legal profession uh, is, is really evident, particularly in the last, uh, we call it the, the, the social media age. Judge O'Donnell touched on this point already. Uh, it, we really do need to get creative in the ways we connect the legal profession, I mean, we connect with members of the public uh, and convey and explain sometimes difficult notions and the fantastic role played by um, legal correspondence uh, for our of our mainstream media and in particular uh, court correspondence in breaking down sometimes complex ideas and explaining them to members of the public uh, in a way that's not remotely patronizing and just informative. And members of the legal profession are informed by how skillful the task is carried out but it really is important that we, we as a members of the legal profession, that we, uh, I think, put our thinking caps on how we connect and convey to members of the public what we do, what judges do, the role of law in society, in a way that's uh, impactful and meaningful. Uh, and I think one, I know the Bar Council, and you've been engaged in this more particularly, the, the process of connecting with schools in particular and conveying to uh, school children and to students and to universities uh, what is involved in the business of the four courts, what role is fulfilled by barristers in independent legal profession and what role is fulfilled by judges in sitting as custodian of legal rights under our constitution and applying the law. That is a huge challenge and it is more as one that we need to take on by connecting I think particularly with younger members of society and we haven't achieved it to date but it's an ongoing challenge. Thank you for that, Michal. Um, the next question is, this is a question that is probably going to be raised again tomorrow, but how do the speakers assess Ireland's influence and power in EU lawmaking in a post-Brexit environment? And what recommendations might they have 
particularly in light of our common law heritage in an otherwise civil law sea. So, um, any volunteers to try and address that question? Well, I'm happy to say something on that, Maura, because I think it's a very important question. Before doing so, can I just say, following the last question, I did just want to say, pay tribute to you and the Bar Council and your predecessors in what you were doing to achieve diversity and inclusion, uh, which is very important, as uh, Michal P has, has said. But going on to the challenge posed by Brexit, it really is a major challenge because as the single common law country, the real danger is sufficient attention is not paid in, uh, in lawmaking or indeed in the decisions of the court to aspects of the common law that are important in terms of developing a system that fits well with the Irish system and that uh, recognises there are differences in the common law system that are important to maintain. I don't adhere to the view that it's common law versus civil law, but I do believe that there are aspects of the common law that are an integral part of our legal system and that have perhaps generated structures and frameworks in society, in the economy, in this jurisdiction that need to be recognised to ensure that there is not unintended and unhelpful impacts, both either in lawmaking or in judicial decision-making. And in terms of resources, we now are deprived of the enormous resources the UK system had in terms of its civil service, the numbers, the expertise, the engagement, and it's now left to Ireland at that level. In terms of intervening in cases, the same applies. And in terms of engaging with the Commission at the early stage of lawmaking processes, which is very important if we're to influence the ultimate outcome, that poses huge resource issues um, and logistical issues for Ireland. So that is a major challenge. I don't think we've found a solution yet. We're alive to the problem, but it's very important that it is addressed. Thank you for that. Um, the next question, um, the late Brian Kerr, Lord Kerr Donamore, former Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland and the longest serving member of the UK Supreme Court who sadly died in December 2020, said in the 2012 Birkenhead lecture, and I quote, the fact that a judge is constrained by no more than his or her conscience in deciding how he should adjudicate is as fundamental to the health of our system of justice as it is possible to imagine. Do the speakers agree with that? Anybody? Well, Maura, um, can I just say, firstly, Brian Kerr was a great man and uh, uh, a very impressive judge. I'm just not sure where that quote comes from or the context, um, but I just wanted to let you know, I don't know if you know, that uh, one of his, his successor, or his, or his successor was Declan Morgan in, as Lord Chief Justice, and, Lord, and Declan Morgan's successor has just been chosen, Miss Justice Siobhan Keegan, and there's probably still time for you to get her to join your panel in two days' time on um, female chief justices, uh, <laughs> I'd like to send my congratulations. Um, I, I, uh, I, I think that well, if I interpret him rightly, I think what Brian Kerr was saying was that a judge's conscience is an important part of the armory. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think he's saying that that is the only thing that constrains a judge, because a judge is constrained by the law 
by precedent um, uh, by the arguments that are made. Um, but but I, uh, if what he was saying is that conscience informs how you uh, how you address those matters, I would agree that it's part of the sort of open analysis and debate that's a, a critical part of any judicial decision making. Okay, thank you for that. I think the phrase conscience, probably moral compass, whatever hmm. the modern day phrase is, would be applicable. Um, another question just in, uh, regarding AI and algorithms, isn't the beauty of appearing before a human judge with actual rather than artificial intelligence that she will be free to reach her decision as required in relation to the individual before her and not merely based on what went before. The judge is free to reach her decision. Also, can one really say that Alpha Zero learned nothing from any human? Question mark. The AI was based on an absorption of human choices. I think that's probably directed to you, Attorney General, for your comment. I think the um, relevance of the algorithm is to identify at the very least that there could be considerable inconsistency in terms of the exercise of discretion by judges. And inconsistency in the exercise of discretion is, of course, something uh, that uh, infringes on the rule of law. One of Lord Bingham's principle is that rights and penalties are determined by legal rules, excuse me, and not discretion. Of course, an element of discretion in terms of punishment, in terms of decision-making is uh, an integral part of the process, but discretion must be properly exercised and there must be standards and rules by which it is done rather than that it's some arbitrary decision-making. I think the relevance of Alpha Zero is that, of course, there's an initial programming, but that programming didn't teach it how to play chess. Once you set it up and you program it, the worry is people will set up computers, they will program it to a certain extent, but then it requires a capacity and an intelligence that is completely different and exponentially more powerful than its original configuration. And therefore, the ability for a computer to teach itself brings us back to those scientific horrors, or sorry, um, scientific age horrors where uh, you see the computers take over. And um, also, Professor Harari has spoken about this, a world in where um, computers ultimately take over humans. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But one of the problems for all of us is we're so busily engaged in what we're doing. The pressures of the time are so severe. Who is stepping back and saying, actually in 2050, we're going to face these issues? If we're to face them, how are we going to control them? This will take time. And the demands of a modern democracy are for instant solutions for immediate problems. Mm -hmm. If you take the gene editing that was carried out in 2018, that took the scientific world by surprise and horror because the capacity was there, but nobody wanted to admit that it could be used in the way in which it was used to produce designer babies. I remember reading a book in the 1960s that predicted that in the 21st century, you would be able to create designer babies. It then seemed something in the realms of fantasy. Now you can do it. And that was done before all of these great people even thought about a structure 
that might provide rules and regulations for it. So you could get certain societies or certain groups who will gene edit to produce humans with particular qualities. So these are problems we never imagined. We're not in a position to cope. And one doesn't need to uh, ponder too long to say, what does that mean for the rule of law as even Lord Bingham understood it? We're just moved into a different stratosphere and we need to recognise the problems that may emerge. Thank you for that. Um, I suppose when you look back 50 years ago, there were no such thing as IT jobs. Now everyone's in no. IT. And then 21 years ago, we were all concerned with the millennium that everything would stop working. Computers, airlines, bank machines, that never came to pass. But hopefully the scenario of AI taking over won't come to pass either. But your point about how law has to catch up with technology, with AI is well made, without a doubt. I believe there's one last question here, which is, Considering the centrality of the concept of rule of law and human rights to civil and political life, it still remains for many an abstract concept. Do the speakers have any views on how a better understanding of human rights and rule of law can be better fostered with the wider public? Claire, I saw you nodding. I mean, Professor, I saw you nodding. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a really good question. It kind of touches on some of the themes that Michal was, uh, Michal P was speaking about earlier, about public confidence um, in, in, in rule of law. Um, and I think this kind of ties into, you know, judicial integrity as well, which I was talking about in my presentation and, um, you know, the, the concern that the courts have rightly about uh, crime control um, in the 21st century, as the Attorney General was saying. And, um, in that regard, I'm just thinking of some uh, research that I carried out recently for the Department of Justice with my colleague, Dr. Lindsay Back, on public confidence. And, and some of the findings uh, are actually quite counterintuitive. So we all assume the public um, is quite punitive, um, is very much concerned with outcomes, with crime control, but the procedural justice literature actually tells us that is not the case. Um, so there, there's actually some hope there, I think, for the tension between crime control and fairness in that what the consistent findings of the procedural justice literature tell us, quite considerable body of evidence, is that people value fairness actually more than outcomes uh, when it comes to justice, when it comes to policing um, and criminal justice. Um, so, um, you know, in terms of communicating to the public and inspiring confidence um, in the justice system, we shouldn't forget fairness, because that would be inimical in the long run, um, I think, to public confidence. I suppose we'll have to wait and see if AI can teach itself fairness in the long run. Um, well, thank you, everybody. That is the last of our questions. I would just like to thank all of our speakers for giving up their time. Um, Mr. Justice O'Donnell, uh, Professor Claire Hamilton, uh, Paul Gallagher, Attorney General, and our former chair, a member of the Bar of Ireland, Michael P. O'Higgins. Thank you, everyone, and um, stay safe and good night.